Hi, this is Trent England with Save Our States with another one of our Six Questions podcast. Thanks so much for being a part of our online audience, whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening on uh, Spotify or uh, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to your, your podcast. I think this is going to be a great episode. We are talking today with Jeff Nelson. He's the executive director and co-founder of the Russell Kirk Center for cultural renewal. And it seems like maybe we need some, some cultural renewal and also a former executive vice president at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, which is close to my heart because back when I was a college student uh, over two decades ago, uh, ISI was was very helpful in supporting our, our uh, conservative student newspaper or really really sort of a campus magazine that uh, that we published that was a lot of fun and even broke some news on the campus so jeff what, what, what paper was that that was the claremont independent out of oh, claremont. sure yeah yeah that's a great paper yeah oh, yeah so so jeff thank you so much for being well, on you're, you're still breaking news so we must have done something right in investing in you that's right well you know when i was there the uh, you know probably the one of the best memories of my entire college career was uh, was having the, the late great Harry Jaffa um, feeding us information from the faculty lounge. <laughs> feeding <laughs> he, he us probably was, about the right uh, image too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was uh, he was a true agitator, and uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, he and that, those were the times. We'll talk about Russell Kirk, but Harry Jaffa. You know these uh, kind of Buckley, these great figures, Frank yeah. Meyer, Whitaker Chambers. Eh? really amazing kind of a eccentric yeah. very uh individualist in the in the right sense of the word uh they sort of walk the earth and, and and populated our their conservative movement it made it so interesting and so important and such an intellectual force in the in the in, the, in our you know modern american intellectual history yeah that's that's right i mean they, they laid an incredible foundation the the first question is is directly to that. What what is the Kirk Center? And obviously, tell people a little bit about Russell Kirk because many people today don't know very much or or even anything about him. Yeah. Well, if you call yourself a conservative, think of yourself as a conservative. Are interested in conservative ideas, institutions, the history and tradition. You have Russell Kirk to thank for your identity. Um, when Russell Kirk wrote his uh, big book, uh, important book, The Conservative Mind in 1953, there was no conservative movement in America. In fact, most all liberals didn't believe there was such a thing as a conservative tradition or could be an American conservative uh, until his book came along and showed that, oh, there, it was not only they're not have only been important American conservatives, but a long and illustrious <clears throat> tradition of American conservatives that in many ways predated uh, even uh, the American founding in back into the colonial times and, and British uh, uh, Americans, and then moving forward uh, to our contemporary time and included all sorts of interesting people, statesmen, poets, um, journalists, writers, um, politicians. And uh, when his book came out and demonstrated this, it was a massive explosion because people, liberals thought that, you know, if you thought you were conservative, it was basically some kind of irritable mental gesture, as one of them put it, right? And not a serious uh, tradition to be engaged with and to be thought uh, of in a, in a high level as fundamentally a, a part of America as any other intellectual tradition. And so Kirk identified this in the conservative mind. And he kind of not just identified the tradition, he kind of gave us a way to think about it 
too, kind of conceived of it in a certain way through an imaginative, you know, kind of presentation of, of history. So he was, his was a powerful historical and imaginative mind. He was a literary figure as well. He wrote very famous ghost stories and Gothic novels, which he's highly regarded for as well. And uh, so he kickstarted this thing uh, and called the conser conservatism in America, the conservative movement when Bill Buckley, William F. Buckley Jr. founded National Review and asked him to be a part of it at its origins. Uh, he called it a conservative review when a year uh, and a half earlier, he was planning to call it some kind of an individualist review because individualism was the only word that the, uh, we conservatives of that time kind of thought of uh, for, as potentially a label for themselves. Uh, collectivism was, a, was abroad. You, you obviously had uh, the same kind of thing going on with the New Deal internally in America. So it was collective versus uh, individualism. Kirk thought that was a false dichotomy. We're persons, not merely individuals. And surely enough, individualism in the 60s and late 50s and into the 60s became a, a prized term of the new left, very radicalized and relativistic, uh, all this you know, obsession with choice. So um, Kirk is an extremely important figure for that uh, regard uh, in, the, in that area that just merely giving us this whole idea of being a tradition, uh, being conservatives in America and the, um, an incredible in just 50, 75 years afterwards, the institutions, the periodicals, the magazines, the thinkers, the scholars, uh, you know, this, this whole blossoming of conservatism in America that we think of must've been here for a long time, but it's still, relatively a very uh, kind of new thing. So we owe a lot to Dr. Kirk for that. Um, as uh, well as we can talk, he was a, he was a prominent uh, syndicated columnist. Uh, yeah. As I mentioned, he wrote ghost stories and uh, he was a very popular campus speaker. So there was, he was just sort of everywhere in the conservative firmament uh, until his death in 1994, but his legacy goes on pretty well. He's got, he's very well translated around the world. He's taught in most colleges and universities on syllabus dealing with uh, American intellectual life or classes on conservatism and liberalism. He's quoted in, or is the subject of magazines. What would Dr. Kirk think of this or that? Or what is, what, what is a Kirkian version of conservatism? Um, uh, uh, what does Kirk's presentation of conservatism look like and, and, uh, with, and with, in regard to the contemporary uh, discussions we're having today um, and uh, how, how might he shed light on it? Because, you know, when I say he, he, it's a big thing to say he identified a tradition, but he also, and that's where it gets interesting and people like Harry Jaffa would uh, occasionally object. So um, yeah. I won't go too much more in the weeds and just wanting to give your listener a sense that this is a very important person in their own sort of tradition yeah. to know about because um, as I think we'll talk about time and time again, Kirk's big figure was Edmund Burke uh, and Edmund Burke was the great British statesman and is the father of uh, modern uh, conservatism intellectually uh, speaking uh, overall. Uh, but, um, and he taught us that people will not look forward to posterity who never look backward to their ancestors. And that was a very important thought for Kirk and, and we, and all of us as conservatives, we're always trying to tease that out. Yeah. So I, I want to dig into that just a little bit in a way that I, I think will be particularly useful for our listeners, which is uh, to ask about Russell Kirk's books. Jeff, you were you were his assistant, even edited some of his books. What where should a person start if they you know, if they're hearing this and saying, well, you know, I've, I've sort of heard of Russell Kirk. I've never read anything by him. I, I want to tap into the, the richness of our conservative tradition. 
Uh, so, I mean, some of his books, you know, the conservative mind is a, is a, is a hefty tome. Um, it's, it's over, it's over there on my bookshelf. I should have grabbed it before we started uh, roots of uh, roots of the American order, I think is another, is another big book, although I think it's very readable, but where, where should people start? Well, there is an, uh, a, a little book that came out a few years ago um, uh, that re, was re, re, reissued. It's called um, a, uh, Russell Kirk's uh, Concise Guide to Conservatism. And it's, you know, Regnery publishes it, Regnery Publisher. It's very available. Um, the his, historian Wilfred McClay wrote a real nice introduction, which kind of sets it up. He just wrote a big book called The Land of Hope, which is, you know, yeah. A, a new presentation of American history. And he left uh, us here in Oklahoma and went to Hillsdale. <laughs> oh, I know. That's too bad. Well, Hillsdale just seems to grab everybody. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I think the concise guide to conservatism, I would say that the politics of prudence is a good, it was his last book of essays, but he has kind of like, um, it's more Reddit-like uh, presentations of his thought. In other words, here's 10 conservative ideas. Here's 10 conservative thinkers. Here's 10 conservative issues. Here's 10. So he kind of gives you lists, which a lot of people like. And they're substantive lists. They're interesting um, when you're going through his conservative principles. I mean, the first chapter on the, or one of the first chapters on the 10 conservative principles is very important. Uh, his chapter on the errors of ideology is very important too, because we um, Kirk was somebody who believed that uh, sort of an ideological cast of mind, you take any theory to hyper theory too far to two stream extremes, um, and that can happen on the right or the left, uh, and, and becomes too reductionist, um, it becomes very dangerous and brittle. And uh, so he's always aware of sort of conservatism as being, you know, having a, a certain kind of ver variety, a sense of imperfected, perfectibility of man and ideas of kind of a sense of humility uh, amongst uh, uh, and both intellectually and, and just in, in, in the sense of our own fallenness. So, um, but I think the politics of prudence, the concise guide, the roots of American order is a, is a longish book in the sense of, you know, it's four or 500 pages, but it is accessible. And mm -hmm. it's a really nice read through um, the ways in which the American founders concede, you know, took from various civilizations, a kind of ideas or inheritances uh, that they made then into their own uh, um, um, thing in Philadelphia. I mean, which so they and, and it's and it's very image based, and we're an image driven yeah. society, and it's it's driven by the images of five cities: uh, uh, um, Jerusalem. What did the founders take from Jerusalem? What did they take from Athens, Rome, London, and then Philadelphia? Culminates in Philadelphia and the and the making of this extraordinary achievement, which is in his view, the reconciliation of order and freedom in a constitutional uh, arrangement and setup. And that's uh, a great gift to mankind and has and made America sort of the greatest republic in the history of mankind. Uh, now, preserving that is, is so important. And again, understanding what how the founders saw and took as being important selectively from these civilizations, and then thinking about that, not just at a moment in time in the founding, but what that what that means to us today, still very much still, we're historically impoverished, and yet our roots are very dry. They're attenuated, you know, they're withering, and we yeah. need to water those roots. So the images all over that book, the figures, the thinkers is a very exciting book and a presentation. So I would say that's the place to start because that gives you the big tradition. That's yeah. that's conservatism as a civilizational project. America then is a particular experiment within that civilization and conservatism, their the tradition is a way to think about 
those two, you know, Western Civ and America within it, and what it is that you know we need to be working on to conserve that to extend it to the next generation. Yeah, yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense to me because when I think back about you know sort of formulating my own ideas, I do think the roots of American order gives you a structure on which to, you know, sort of build a lot of ideas and understanding about where, where these, where these ideas came from, whether they're in the declaration or the constitution or uh, just a, a part of our, of our culture. That's. Yeah. These are great debates. I mean, look, the yeah. conservative, one cool thing about, and Dr. Kirk was part of this and knew it and was as what conservatives of the, this generation were very excited by the most interesting uh, and dynamic uh, sort of intellectual debates in American history in the last 75 years have not been between conservatives and liberals. It's been between and among conservatives themselves. Yeah. And there's just so much richness and and go and pretty intense uh, and interesting uh, dialogue. You probably may remember that when you were a student, you know, going back and, wow, I got to think about this school of thought and that school of thought. I'm at Claremont. Now, you know, yeah. what, what do I think of that? And, you know, there's these libertarians that are out somewhere and, and they're doing their thing. And there's these people who believe in tradition and, you know, continuity and moral order. And, you know, what's that all about? Uh, what are these journalists up to at National Review? Is this thing called fusionism really work? Is it a thing? Is it not? Um, so, I mean, it's super exciting to be an American conservatism and pretty boring to be an American liberal. I, th I think that's right. Yeah, I, I certainly learned <laughs> never to skip the letters section of the Claremont Review of Books. Yeah, no, don't do that. <laughs> so another, another question, uh, you mentioned Russell Kirk writing fiction. And of course, Bill Buckley wrote fiction. C.S. Lewis wrote fiction. What is the connection between being a, a, a deep and productive thinker and in writing fiction? I mean, and, and some of this is is you know it's it's not uh, it's not these complicated uh, you know modern novels. I mean, many of these are are you know they're they're simple sort of whimsical stories that uh, that these these people have have written as a part of their work what how does how does that fit in is that yeah. is that is there a connection or is it is it just sort of oh, i think it's i think it's the most one of the most central connections we can make uh it, because the imagination is more powerful than reason um just is um so we know that uh images stories our lord knew that he told parables right i mean it's when he does how he taught through stories um stories signify stories reaching the napoleon knew it he said imagination rules the world um <clears throat> you know people who are creative and can imagine and stretch things out they're the they're the seekers they're seers i mean you know the abstract reason can be we're talking about can be very limiting um and uh and may, may mislead us and so experience, imagination, these are other modes of knowledge. They are modes of knowledge. Reason, science are not the only way we know truth and reality. Many ways we can get to reality more analogically, you know, more directly through the imagination. That's why Lewis knew that. I mean, Narnia, come on, he wrote all this great stuff, but it's Narnia he's known for, right? Yeah. Um, and Buckley wrote, um, well, I like Bill a lot, but those those aren't great. Um, for him, I think that was just fun, you know. Yeah. Cold War, Cold War, you know, stuff. <laughs> um, but you know, people did read them, and they did, you know, sort of convey a sense of the drama of the Cold War, and you know, the West and the spy stuff. And he, you know, got that from Chambers too. And so he was doing his in his way, and then Kirk is doing it very 
Interestingly, uh, through the arc of his own career, through his many short stories and his uh, and his novels, um, which uh, some of which are now being um, treated for potential uh, Hollywood scripts, so I think um, and um, he too understood and thought. I mean, he would have liked to have read, uh, wrote more more uh, fiction than nonfiction had he had the chance. It's just more fun, but it is, I think it's also more satisfying, and I think. Um, that's one of the reasons we're, we're a center for cultural renewal. You mentioned the need for cultural renewal uh, at the outset. Um, this is an area where conservatives have talked about it for a long time. We're, we're not, we have not done well in the arts. We really have not encouraged and supported um, imaginative fiction, painting, drawing, poetry, music. Um, and I think we're doing a lot better in that though. I feel like there's a kind of a, a revival, a renaissance in, in, in the conservative Christian space of all uh, in these areas of, of of literature and poetry and 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 um and painting even in music and things happening in hollywood so i'm i'm kind of bullish that this um obsession with politics politicizing everything reducing everything to labels you know all that um is giving way to a sense of probing for the deeper realities of the truth of the human condition of who we are and to me the imagination is 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 the what is the avenue it's yeah so, so another, i think that's another... the, i think that's the connection yeah, no, I and I think that I think that makes I think that makes a lot of sense. I the Wall Street Journal had a story within the last year or so about uh, some social science research that that you know that they presented as sort of surprising that uh, you know people who read a lot more fiction uh, have a lot more empathy. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that, that doesn't seem surprising at all. And, and rather, you know, I think it, it seems uh, in, in line with uh, with the, the with the understanding that you just described that, uh, you know, imagination is is one of the ways that we know things about, especially things about other people. And uh, yeah, I, I thought that was I thought it was fascinating that to whoever, you know, whatever young scribbler wrote the uh, the article for the journal, they seem very uh, sort of uh, confounded by the the whole th idea that reading fiction could could really be valuable for life. Yeah, mo and not, most conservatives understood this. You know, the power of the imagination. I mean, but um, but um, and I and I think today there's. I mean, there are conference. I just saw a big conference, two day conference. It's going to be at Dallas. It's got like oh, incredible, really big lineup of musicians, poets, and novelists, like two and a half days full of AP publishers, lots of stuff going on um, for in our space. So, uh, and I've seen, you know, there's journals now, Scala Foundation with Margarita Mooney. Suarez is doing a lot of art things. Um, James Matthew Wilson is getting a lot of attention for his poetry and who was reading poetry 10 years ago or three or eight, eight, 12 months ago. So, uh, so I, I, I but I'm, but they're getting a lot of action on social media. They're they're getting a lot of traction. So I think this is a good thing for conservatism because we we can't just be arid intellectuals. You know, we have to really plumb the depths of our spirit and our imagination, who we are, and as you say, transcend all sorts of boundaries. Um, yeah. And 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 I think this is the way. So it's I've been find it very exciting, and it's interesting. Kirk's interesting because he's a founder in one genre, an area of modern American conservatives, a big political movement. He's considered a father. And another area is considered a father of the Gothic revival of Gothic fiction, the uncanny ghost story, Stephen King. He was close, uh, admires him. Ray Bradbury and he were close friends. Stephen Par uh, Parnell, uh, Jerry Parnell was big. Uh, Dean Koontz is a big popular writer now, is a massive mm -hmm. Kirk guy fan and oh. stuff. So he's always anthologized. Some some people only know him as, as a guy who wrote uncanny uh, stories and ghost stories and 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 not the politics. And and of course it's usually the other way around. So when you get the mix going, it's really it's really cool. It's yeah. Fun. 
That's that's terrific. Well, you mentioned poetry, so I'll ask you uh, a, a question about uh, both Russell Kirk and T.S. Eliot talked about the permanent things. Mm-hmm. I, I think that you know, in in our postmodern, post postmodern world, you know, a, a lot of a lot of people, especially young people, are being told there just there are no permanent things. How do they recognize? and make the case for the permanent things? Well, you recognize them all around you every day uh, in institutions you work with or through or the people uh, that your schools that you're a part of, uh, the churches that you go to. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're mediated in those institutions, mediate the permanent things uh, for us. But we know that there are, well, I suppose as an intellectual endeavor, we can argue about universal truths and how you get there and whether they're permanent or impermanent or whether, you know, we can, what, what we can know to the certain levels that way. But I think that as a matter of just kind of uh, intuition and experience and experience, going back to experience being our guide, um, we, we know through, um, we know, we know what, we know what's true, which makes us happy. And we know what's works as a civilization and as a culture. And it is those kind of permanent things that working the families, the churches, the schools, civics associations, those are the things that, you know, endure and that are so important to keep uh, the continuity of our beliefs, practices, and institutions uh, moving forward. And um, it's, I think it's just kind of, um, we introducing students to the right, or to thinkers that can kind of get them excited about it. But you know, the romance of tradition and the romance, Chesterton talked about the romantic, romance of orthodoxy. You, know? you wanna love something, you wanna love your country. You want, as Burke said, your country has to be lovely <clears throat> for it to be loved. We want it, we want it to be lovely and we wanna love it. And I think we wanna love, you know, those who are dearest to us, well, obviously we do and hopefully, and, and, we, uh, and our communities and our local, local being, you know, we find a lot of the permanent things in the local, not in the national or the global. So sort of turning our heads back to the um, garden that's, you know, right around our corner or in our backyard, as opposed to dreaming about how other perfect gardens can be formed somewhere else and somehow else, just being content with and excited about uh, what's around us and what we can do to renew um, culture and renew the permanent things and reinvigorate them. Because you're right, they are Sometimes they're easy to take for granted. Permanent things, kind of a vague term, so you have to kind of, you know, uh, uh, bring it down a little bit, and also just uh, to talk to students about what it means to be a conservative and to conserve institutions, to reinvigorate, to renew, to cultivate. Uh, these are all kind of conservative ideas, and it's the permanent things that we're we're focused on. So, I think I, you know, I don't think there's a it's a it's an easy just come in, sit down for the classroom, and you know couple hours, we'll, we'll work through this together. But I think being a model, having models, having example hours, and really seeing that the, those institutions that are close to you, that are belong to you, that are mediating these permanent truths that are so important to you, to you and your, um, your life moving forward, uh, and showing kids maybe just a couple practical ways of how they can get involved and make a difference and to love those better and to be excited about what they see as a result. I'm talking with Jeff Nelson. He's the executive director and co-founder of the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal. Jeff, here at Save Our States, obviously, we defend the Electoral College, and it goes right to the heart of, I, I think you, you mentioned, you know, talking about Russell Kirk's book, The Roots of the American Order, uh, this, this conflict that people sometimes see between 
uh, freedom and order. There's a conflict between democracy and the rule of law. And we find ourselves at, at the intersection of that oftentimes. For sure. How do you explain that, right? Especially in the face of all this political rhetoric about democracy. Everything's supposed to be democracy. We, we know, I mean, anyone who, who values the, the Bill of Rights knows that they don't actually want to be ruled by just pure direct democracy. That's not a form of government that's ever been successful, but people talk that way. It's become a sort of a, a casual way to attack things in the constitution and otherwise that people don't like. So how, how do you defend this, uh, this constitutional order that both allows and restrains democratic majorities to, to get what they want? Well, as a, at the Kirk Center, what we do is uh, we defend it through education. We defend it specifically through historical education. And then you can, you know, um, from there begin to uh, defend it through the sort of the ideas that inform these to the historical conditions and debates and arguments and institutions that emerge and, and try then not just to look at it as a mere thing of the past, but also as something that has that teaches us in the here and now, because we're, you know, these, like, as you mentioned, and these, and certainly it's true with the Electoral College, this has been a never ending discussion, it seems like, in our history, um, between these uh, two polarities. Democracy and what kind of republic we are, or aren't. Um, so I think these are the, this is we live in a at the very difficult time to, to make some of these arguments because well there's the social media the things we know you know the way communications works the degradation of the uh american educational system is just devastating um and but i think we have to find ways through institutions and pro programs like save the states and others that where you can do like i mentioned just a minute ago where in the place that you're at the garden you're in you're given your mission you're at, we all can't do everything we have to have a a healthy division of labor if we're going to between groups and institutions if we're going to turn this around and um so we each do our part uh, and we do it very well and effective hopefully we'll reach these new generations and focus less on abstract you know stuff and more on like let's get you thinking about history we do a lot obviously here we teach american conservatism it's the russell kirk center they come to learn what it means to be an american what it's meant to be an american conservative what it means to be an american conservative and uh, we do that through all sorts of ways but the historical orientation is really key um for us and it's really striking because of what we can get on policy questions or some journalistic or some debate on twitter or you know some and the students will light up and they'll talk but if you start talking about a little bit about the roots of American order. Well, let's go to Athens and say, you know, what is what is this tradition of reason? Where does it come from? Blah, blah, or even, you know, you start at this layering in some historical uh, education. As it, it, the question and answer just dry up. They don't know how to think, you know, even historically, or what what do, I don't know what to make you. So they're just. So this is very. This is a kind of a big challenge. Um, having said that. Uh, Dr. Kirk would always say at the end of his, near the end of his speeches, he'd go about 80% that the world was falling apart. And then he'd stop and say, well, uh, now it's time to let a little cheerfulness break through. And so if you want a cheerfulness to break through, I would say the other thing I see, and you probably see as well, is this incredible explosion, really. I mean, it's homeschooling been going, but now the explosion of classical schools and all these new networks, these Chesterton schools or the um, Great Heart schools, charter schools, there's every kind of school out there uh, crazy. And uh, and there's colleges now that are, you know, have, were 
homeschool colleges that are kind of growing out of that, but still doing that very well. And, and those students are amazing. I mean, their historical literacy, they're st- they study uh, past languages, the languages of uh, Greek and Latin. Well, in doing that, they also st- study the civilization. Oh, in doing that, they start reading the, the American founders and they see Latin and Greek all over the place. Yeah. Look at the great seal of our nation. It's like layers upon layers of historical roots of American order education. Uh, and uh, and they get it and they're just proliferating. And I think that's, that is the future. And if we can keep feeding that fire, getting those kids through and to their place where they're where we're at you know 10 15 20 years from now we're going to be a much better much healthier movement so i'm very bullish on the on the on the longer term believe it or not i'm not you know the present getting through the present is a little bit of a struggle yeah yeah we we don't have an intern program anymore at uh, at save our states but when i used to be involved in hiring interns for the heritage foundation and a couple of other think tanks and uh it it was remarkable the difference, and I I hope I hope that students out there, parents, grandparents, really paid attention to what you just said because the difference between the students who came out of the kind of programs you're you're describing, you know, Hillsdale being one, but but Hillsdale not being the only one anymore, which is really yeah, important. We're only talking about a thousand kids at Hillsdale. We need a lot more than that. Yeah, that's right. But the 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 difference between those students. And in uh, almost all of the rest, I mean, certainly you could find some who were self-educated and yet had, you know, had gone to some sort of ordinary school. But uh, uh, no, it was it, it was it was shocking. And, and we certainly that that does give you a glimmer of hope. And you see these students out there who have sought out for themselves because you don't fall into it <laughs> anymore. Um, yeah. And they're being recruited by the mainstream. Yeah. Now the, the high school kids from all these variety of, of classical homeschool, whatever, uh, all these, these independent um, college uh, high schools, they're being recruited into the top colleges, Harvard, Yale, yeah. Virginia, they're all recruiting them. All the law schools and the graduate schools are recruiting them. So they're going to, and they're moving into those places. They're not just going to the Hillsdales or the Grove cities or the Thomas Aquinas or whatever. They're going there and they should, yeah. like you said, they're amazing, but uh, they can also find their way. They're so well-grounded. And that's the thing. Uh, when, when to say, I guess, about the order, when you are able to teach them that what we're about, what the founders are about was a very difficult project. It was about reconciling tendencies, reconciling the tendencies of order and freedom. Reconciling is a key word. That's that's a very, that's an art. It's not such a science. And and you have to think, you have to know, you have to have experience, you have to uh, have prudence, um, in moderation. So I think in the, in the best sense, and these students kind of get that and they're able to get through even the crazy, crazy schools and get, get get the right degrees and, and they're moving out. So I, I think that as they move into institutions and stuff, they're, they're the future. And, and look, let's face it, demographically, that's a good thing too, because they're, they're having more, you know, that those kind of parents are having more children. So yeah, that's right. So well, I, Jeff, yeah, it's, I, I think there's some good stuff going on and we have our work to do, but um, I think there's going to be even a more willing audience for it moving forward. So I certainly, uh, certainly agree with you there and, and hope that we're right. Last question on our six questions podcast is always who is your favorite founding father and why? Oh, wow. Um, well, <clears throat> I love John Adams, of course, but I'm not going to go there Trey, because that's just sort of, that would be, I've always really, really liked, um, admired uh, John Dickinson, Pennsylvania, uh, Delaware, mm-hmm. spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania and Delaware, been in his house. He is an extraordinary thinker. He was a huge uh, uh, 
titan of that period, that uh, just that that uh, very post uh, Seven Years War uh, period, that early colonial period, into right up to the Constitution. He's one of the main few people that went has gone basically from the Stamp Act crisis to the Constitutional Convention and beyond. And uh, he was a an incredible. Well, he's very neglected now, but he was very influential. Was a statesman, a thinker, very important. Deep. He wrote a. Um, a very important pamphlet that is only rivaled by Payne's Common Sense called the Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania. And it was written in, uh, I think, 1760. It was around the 1767. It was around the Townsend Acts, where he laid out for the first time. He was he was like yourself. He was a legal scholar. He was a deep legal scholar. Went to the inns at, uh, at court in England as a young man when just they were just starting to do that. Was the most legally erudite, arguably, uh, member of the founding generation. An incredible figure. And he made the legal case for the first time of, um, of, of you know, for, for basically uh, separation from the colonies in, that, in those letters. Now, he wasn't advocating what, at the time pure separation, but he was advocating through very close legal reasoning that, uh, that the Stamp Act uh, taxes and the Townsend Acts were an innovation, an innovation of British. Uh, British. Mm -hmm. and, and, has so, and as such, the, the col col colonies had the right to, you know, Re, uh, reject them and to, to sort of fight back. Well, that was read, everyone read it in Europe, everyone in the colonies. It, it, was, it started a whole movement and led it, traced out the history of the colonial complaints against the British for the first time. That's who was made. Now, why is he not known? You're asking, I know you're asking, Trent, you're in your mind. Right. Why? Sounds so great, so interesting, so, so important. Yes, he was. Why? Don't we know him better? Uh, because he did not vote for the Declaration of Independence. He was there. He wasn't against separation. He was for it, like everybody there at that meeting was. But but he represented a position that it was immoderate to do it at that time because they didn't have the French uh, lined up. And he said, hey, we need the French behind us. We're going to get wiped out. I mean, the potential for this to be a bloodbath, to be a rupture. He wanted greater assurance that the French, that, that they could get this done and get it done right. And he made a very famous argument at the time, only a few uh, held it, but he, he was known as the penman of the revolution. He wrote most, most of the documents of the time. Had he not taken that nuanced position on the Declaration of Independence, probably would have been the writer of the Declaration of Independence, not John, not, not, yeah. uh, not, not Jefferson. Uh, everybody knew, everybody knew, um, you know, Dickinson in that way. Uh, he's been called the American Burke. Um, hey, that's American Burke. That's good enough for me. Yeah. He's, a favorite founder. <laughs> He's a complicated guy, but it does show how nuanced them. There's not just a monolithic founding, right? It's just not five guys and, yeah. and, and fries, you know, at the foundering. It was, it was, it, there was some other guys uh, with some other stuff bringing to the table. And Dickens is a monstrous, uh, monster intellectual and a really interesting guy. I think he, he wrote, I know I'm going too long here, but I got excited. You got me excited about John Dickinson. No, it's, it's great. Uh, a lot you, of people don't get excited stretch. about it, but he wrote yeah. at the time to his friends, I know all my fame, everything I had gotten up to this point, people's admiration. I know it's chucked out the window by, by doing this. The posterity is going to look wrong down on me, but I'm going to do it anyway because this is what I believe and it's about principle. That's a good yeah. guy. You're the you're the first guest who's uh, mentioned John Dickinson. I, I think oh, that's really? a great. Oh well, good. Well, hey, that go out there and read John Dickinson, people. There's a great book, ISI book published. ISI it, book, uh, back. Yeah. It's a very nice little book by William uh, Murchison. I think it's called The Cost of Liberty. It's a very yeah. nice, easy volume. Very interesting guy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I, a, cons a real conservative. It, that's that's right. And it, it is it is a great it is a great book. Uh, I was I was hoping you were going to mention that because I couldn't remember what the title was, but. Uh, uh, no, it's it's uh, it, it's it's also over there. <laughs> good. On the no, show, got a good library. So the founders uh, would approve. 
That's well, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> I, ISI it certainly has been one of the best sources for conservative books uh, through across my entire lifetime. So I'm very, very thankful for your work. They're very thankful, Jeff Nelson, for your work at the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal. Uh, how can people find out more about what you do, uh, maybe connect students with the, the Kirk Center? How do they get in touch? Well, the best way for all of us is on our website, which is uh, kirkcenter.org, just kirkcenter.org, not Russell Kirk, just word Kirk Center. Um, and there you'll find a, a pretty uh, clear outline of, uh, of our programs for students uh, and for high school teachers. We talked about that. We have students, uh, high school teen uh, program. We also have a a, an online book review um, uh, journal, the University Bookman, which publishes every week uh, several book reviews online. And you can kind of, if you want a good, good, great conservative writers today writing about, you know, conservative books and ideas and all kinds of things, including non-political things, some culture, the arts, and some of the things you were talking about earlier, novels. So you'll find stuff there that you might not find anywhere. But anyway, there's lots, hopefully you find uh, something that will interest you in the, with the Kirk Center. And of course, read Dr. Kirk's writings. They always repay. Jeff, thank you so much for being a part of our Six Questions podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. And thanks to all of you for watching, for listening. We will be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, please uh, stay in touch with us through Facebook, Twitter, wherever you are on social media. The, the power of Save Our States and what we do is the power of you out there contacting your state legislators, uh, spreading the word about the importance of the Electoral College, our nation of states, this constitutional order that Jeff and I have been talking about. And rem remember to go and visit uh, kirkcenter.org. Until next time, I'm Trent England for Save Our States.